0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Ludwig Floor Coverings. If you're in the Smithville area, be sure to check them out. A big thanks to them for sponsoring the podcast and making this conversation possible. Now back to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of Real Talk. I believe we're on episode number 40, so that's pretty cool. And uh, today we have a special guest all the way from Ottawa. Uh, Not here in person, unfortunately, but over Zoom, so... We'll take uh, we'll take what we can get. and uh, we're very <laughs> excited to have uh, Reverend uh, Winston Bosch with us today. We're going to be talking about his uh, series of sermons involving the role of uh, of men and women in the church and what that means, gender roles, how that plays out, what the Bible has to tell us about this topic. and And we'll look specifically at, yeah, the different the two different extremes and and the cultural influences that are involved. So uh, thank you for coming on the podcast today, Winston. And uh, if you could just give the people a quick bio about who you are, what you do, and and well then we'll get into it.
1: Yeah. So thanks, guys. Good to be here. So um well let me give a bio that's sort of related to our topic at hand. So uh, I'm married to one wife, which um it meets meets one of the qualifications to be an elder. So that's good. Yep. Uh, I got I have two sons and a daughter. Uh, I pastored a church for six years in the ERQ in the French Reformed Church in Quebec. Uh, which was a church in Quebec is a is a province that tends to be you know on the on the social scale tends to be the farthest left and mm-hmm. tends to be where also issues of men and women equality are really on the forefront for everybody. Prior to that, I I worked as a missionary for five years in West Africa where I was working with groups that were on the far other side of the spectrum where people were living in uh, in really some some really difficult terrible examples of what you might call patriarchy where women are treated pretty much as, as chattel, as slaves, as, as animals sometimes. Well, um, and then I've been, I've been a pastor here at, uh, at Jubilee for coming on, uh, five years. It'll be five years this summer. Well, so yeah, that's it. Good to be right here.
2: On. Yeah. Uh, Winston's also the host, I guess, host, co-host of Tyrannus Hall, the podcast. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners have also listened to you on there. So, um, yeah. And there's lots of good stuff there too. Um, yeah, no, we're glad to have you. This is, uh, going to be good. We, I first came across the series of sermons that, yeah, it looks sound like it was two years ago. Um, someone referred me to it and I, I always thought this would be a good conversation to have. So, uh, we originally asked uh, you to come on cause uh, you preached a sermon maybe a few weeks ago about COVID and we were, you know, like everyone, I guess we're deep in the throes of COVID discussion, but, um, yeah, I was. We were just going to ask why uh, you you were a little hesitant to talk about that that issue because I'm sure. Yeah. Our- so I I declined that offer, right? <laughs> so that that uh
1: that wasn't because I'm not interested in the topic or don't have things to say, but uh, <laughs> when you're a pastor and it comes to this issue, you got lots of skin in the game, mm. you know. And so this is this is an issue that is alive and being dealt with in our own uh, consistory in our own church. And so, you know, when I I preach a sermon on it, that was for my local church. Uh, And then, you know, other, other people watch it, but it's for my local church. And that's happening within a whole local church context. And so I thought to myself, I'm not sure if it's going to be helpful for my own ministry in my local church to, to get on your podcast and talk about that. Yeah. So uh, I, was, I wasn't trying to avoid the issue, but I was trying to keep my head down and be a local pastor.
2: No, no, we appreciate that. I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners will say, well, you had Winston on and why didn't you ask him about COVID? Because they were uh, listening to that sermon and uh, I know that it got around. So and it was very helpful. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for that, too. Um, but yeah, maybe we can get into our discussion on... Um, I guess the title of the series, at least on YouTube, from the uh, sermons was "Male Only Leaders," um, and kind of investigating that and why we have that in our churches. So,
0: yeah, I think if we could, uh, a good place to start, I suppose, is is history, and you laid it out in the in the first of the three sermons there too. Um, yeah, I guess the first the first sermon focused a lot on rejecting gender stereotypes. So maybe if we can start. I mean, I would recommend people check out the sermons as well. But uh, this is kind of hopefully be a deep dive into these three and we can, you know, nice to interact with with the pastor in a bit of a different forum that way as well. And uh, maybe if we can start with a history, just talk about, OK, define gender stereotypes and then why tell us, OK, so what does the Bible say about these stereotypes? And then perhaps I know you reference Nancy Piercy a lot and I'm making this a very long and big question, but maybe we'll uh, <laughs> just read a sermon maybe. Yeah, we'll start with that and then we'll get into um Maybe the views of the culture in the Greco-Roman area, And then we'll go from there. Sure.
1: So, yeah, let's hop into that. But maybe, can I just say a couple of words like why did I go about preaching this sermon series is I was oh, yeah. just working my way through the Belgian confession. So yep. in the afternoons, I, I took a break from the Heidelberg Catechism I taught through the Belgian confession and I got the Belgian confession article 30, which mm-hmm. talks about the spiritual order of the church and pastors and elders and deacons. And then the end of the article says that, uh, you know, you, I've, I've got it here. The, the end of the article says, by these means everything will be done well and in good order when faithful men are chosen in agreement, with the rule that the apostle Paul gave to Timothy and so I was like, well, let's just pause for a moment and do a series of sermons on, on why it is that faithful men are chosen to these offices. And I kind of wanted to do that because I, I think that, A, there's a whole lot of pressure in our culture around us that sort of shakes its head and say, what do you mean? You only have male pastors, you know, elders, deacons, you know, this is crazy. So I wanted to be able to speak to that. But then I also wanted to speak to, uh, to in our own church, Uh, you know, not just the culture pressures, but pressures of tradition within our own church that may or may not be biblical. So I wanted to, to sort of chart a biblical path through that and do that in a way that I could grab the ear of both people. I could grab the ear of people that are really skeptical about male only leadership in the church and people that are really convinced of it. So try to chart a path through that, um, and bring people to, to an enthusiastic, um, an enthusiastic confirmation of male only leader, leadership in the church, because I don't think it's something that we should be embarrassed about. I don't think it'd be something that we should hide. And I think we should just be enthusiastic about what the Bible teaches and, um, yeah, and to be positive about that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So then I, I, thought, okay, the first sermon, um, the first sermon I, I picked as my text, uh, the passage in one Peter that, uh, that talks about the weaker vessel. So, you know, husbands treat your wives as the weaker vessel. And so I wanted to get to that text, but, you know, to chart my way to that text, I said, well, let's talk about what it's, what it's not. Let's talk about the idea of stereotypes, because we all have, we all sort of place ourselves when it comes to gender roles and uh, leadership in the church and the role of husband and wife in marriage. There's sort of like a sliding spectrum. And maybe on the one side, you've got sort of very traditional patriarchy you know, like I would have seen in in West Africa, for instance, where it's like, the man is the boss, the woman is treated like a, a piece of, you know, a possession. Yep. Uh, and then on the other side, you might have the people that are like, let's smash the patriarchy, masculinity is toxic, you know, sort of uh, the extremes of, of, of feminism. Yep. And then we mm-hmm. all end up as Christians, we'll place ourselves somewhere in there. And you'll have You have, you know, people that will identify as complementarians and people that identify as egalitarians and people that within to both of those groups, there'll be sort of different positions. And so I want Mm -hmm. to sort of say, okay where do we sort of place ourselves in the midst of all this in terms specifically of of uh, leadership in the church amongst amongst the office bearers? So Mm -hmm. stereotypes, um, like we all use stereotypes, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah stereotypes is just a social phenomenon that we use to help us categorize things and help us to understand the world. Cause we like to think in categories. So mm-hmm. um, stereotypes, you know, often have their, their oftentimes, not all the time, but often have this kernel of truth to them. So, you know, you think that there's stereotypes, like, I don't know, like if you're walking at night in a, in a, in a dark alley, which is just a dumb thing to do. <laughs> and, and And then there's like, three guys come around the corner. Yeah. Well, like you You're should probably move? be more you should be more scared if it's three guys than if it's three girls. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the stereotype is, and there's a big kernel of truth is, is that men do violent crime a lot more than women.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So,
1: you know, but you might you might be surprised to find out that it's three women who want to beat us not out of you. But uh <laughs> You, you could, you know, you use the stereotype to sort of make your way in the world. So stereotype is yeah. not always a, a terrible thing. Um, what I think that they're, they're, they're bad for is if we use sort of our stereotypes, which are heavily influenced by our culture, to, uh, and then we use that as a filter in order to understand God's word. Yeah. But that's a problem. So you talk about stereotypes, you talk about descriptive and prescriptive stereotypes. A, a descriptive stereotype is a stereotype that describes how the world is or how men are or how women are. And then a, a prescriptive one would be how men should be or how women should be. So it prescribes something. And so I think that, um, that we in general ought to, ought to reject both of those kinds of stereotypes when we're thinking about, uh, how we understand scripture and how we understand um, men and women roles in the church. I think we mm-hmm. ought to do our best to stick with what the word of God says and not, not think about stereotypes.
0: Can you, so can you yeah, dig in? Can you dig into like, um, so I guess maybe on the traditional side of the fence, like some of the, the mm. classical roles where uh, you yeah. see in so, a church like this.
1: And this is where like, this is not stuff that I'm coming up with my brilliant mind. This is stuff I'm getting from, you know, historians and people like Nancy Percy who have done a lot more research than I ever had. So you get sort of, um, you get stereotypes that come to a sort of the Greco Roman world. Uh, these are stereotypes that already existed in the new Testament era and sort of, they, they come up every once in a while in history. So It's the idea, the stereotype that men and women are completely different. They're opposites. They're separate. There's no overlap in terms of their character and their qualities. They're separate and that they're also unequal. Hmm. So you have a, you know, that men are better than women and that there might be morally better, that they might be better at all kinds of other things. And so that's a stereotype in the Greco-Roman world that was really there. So in in the sermon, I mentioned sort of the funny example of the word uh, hysterical or hysteria, where that comes from comes from this Greek word, uh, you know, that is the word for uterus. And this, this really weird idea that if a woman didn't use her uterus for, for, uh, for birthing children, then it would uh, float around in her body and touch her other organs and she would become hysterical, you know? And so, you know, it was like, you know, so you you had these ideas about women. Well, you know, your only role is to have children. And if you don't do that, there's something wrong with you or something will happen with you. Um, You get it in Aristotle where he separates the world into like the, the domain of the home and the domain of the city or the political domain. And that, that, you know, the men are over here and the women are over here. So men need to be educated and they also need to understand theology and, you know, they need to understand those things. Women don't need that. They don't need that. They're, they're part of the home. Those two don't overlap. And yeah, so those, those stereotypes come up every once in a while. And then if you understand that that's sort of in the background, in the air also of the new Testament, then you realize some of the real countercultural teaching that happened in the new Testament, like, Paul saying in one Corinthians seven, that you don't have to be married, that you could, you could stay single. That mm-hmm. was like a very radical teaching in his time. Like yeah. you can be a person of value and dignity without being married. If you're a woman, yeah. like, that yeah. was radical teaching. You know, that that was like blow, blow your mind. Um, and then you get, you know, you get uh, interesting things like uh, Tertullian writing in about 200 after Christ, he writes a letter to his wife and he says, you know, if I ever die, um, and you, you're going to remarry, make sure you marry a Christian man because the non-Christian men will not afford you the liberties that a Christian woman would expect. Yeah. You know, the church was really counterculture. culture It wasn't abiding by these Greco-Roman ideas of, uh, of men and women. And then uh, you, you see, other stereotypes throughout history around, uh, men and women. And and they sort of pop up and follow this Greco and Roman ideal. So you get in the, in the, um, 1700s and the 1800s. So in the 1700s before the industrial revolution, so, you know, pre 1760, uh, you have, well, like a lot of our ancestors, like, I don't know about you guys, what your grandparents or great grandparents did for jobs, but you know, mo- most of our, our grandparents or great grandparents or great, great grandparents were farmers or fishermen. And, like yep. you can't run a mm-hmm. farm if you don't have good cooperation between men and women, like, you know, the husband mm. and the wife each have to work a lot and you have to work cooperatively. Otherwise you starve and you freeze during the winter.
2: Yep. Yep. Like, you
1: know, So you both people have really valued positions in the economy of the home, mm. but then when you get a, and so, so pre-industrial revolution, these masculinity and femininity, there was, there was ideas about that, but not as rigid as we find post-industrial revolution where now it's men going off to the factory, women stay home with the children. It's, you know, it's very divided. The men go off to work and the women, they don't work. They stay at home. Um, And then you get, you get these, these new ideas about femininity and masculinity. Women are, are soft and homely and they belong to the, the, the private realm, the domestic realm, they're, they're, they keep care of children. They don't need an education. They shouldn't work outside of the home, men, public realm, tough, hard, provide worker, uh, providers, workers, ambitious, you know, you know, all of those things. Um, you know, they don't change diapers and they don't keep care of children that's women's roles. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you, you see that, you see that develop in the Victorian area era. And then you get a, you get this, You get Darwinism shows up in the 1800s. And so Darwin, we all know him for his evolutionary perspectives, right? But he also writes something called descent of man and selection in relation to sex. And there I've, I've got a quote on my screen here. He says, man is more courageous, pugnacious and energetic than women and has a more inventive genius. Man has a higher eminence in whatever he takes up than women can attain. Just saying that men are better than women. That was Darwin's perspective, which yeah. makes you think like all the people that want to pull down statues, you know, of people like yeah. you probably should be pulling down statues of Darwin too, because yeah. he certainly didn't hold women in a high regard <laughs> Or you get a, uh, you get, you know, the famous French psychologist and Dr. Uh, Gustave Lebon. And he, uh, he says that women are an inferior form of human evolution. Uh, you know, he says that uh, a distinguished woman who surpasses an average man is an exceptional as a gorilla with two heads. You know, it's just these, yeah, these, these really, you know, uh, very, very low ideas of, of women. And that's that's common in the culture all around, all around, the, uh, you know, people all around the church at that time. And then that that culture, that Greco-Roman culture, the Victorian culture, that Darwinian culture, it seeps into the church. Mm. And it changes how people think instead of thinking biblically about men and women, they start thinking in a secular way about men and women. Mm. You know We have the same danger today, perhaps the the, the reverse, but that that's what was happening. so in a, in the Victorian area, you, you see that greco-Roman, Darwinian uh you know philosophies coming together, so people, yeah, people have odd ideas about men and women. so yes, yeah, th- think about think about the fact that in our own culture, like it wasn't until 1929 in Canada that women were considered persons. It's not yeah. that people didn't think they were people, but they weren't persons according to the law. So they couldn't vote. participate in political realm.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: So I live like 20 minutes yeah. from Quebec. It wasn't until 1940 that women in Quebec could vote in political elections. It's not mm. really that long ago. That's wild. right. So this yeah. is, this has been the, the dominant mindset for, for a long time. Um, and and it, it comes out in a, uh, in interesting ways uh, in the church still today comes out in, you know, I, I sometimes see it in my, in my own ministry, where the idea, the, the sort of the assumption that even that women shouldn't be as interested in theology as men or aren't as interested in theology as men, or perhaps mm-hmm. um, don't have as much access to their pastor, you know, as, as the men do, because, well, you know, theology, that's sort of, that's part of the police. That's part of the the public realm, you know, in a Greco and Roman philosophy. So, mm-hmm. so women don't yeah, oh, so interesting. That, that would be some of the stereotypes that exist have existed throughout history.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the funny yeah. thing, yeah, there's always a kernel of truth in each one of those still. Like, there's always, yeah, yeah it's like the low view of women is, is completely wrong and whatnot. But yeah, you do see, on average, like men and women are interested in different things. And they have, they have different, uh, different pursuits and different interests. Like men are often interested in things, whereas women are more interested in people and whatnot. Do you think like you gave the example of um, in the sermon there of women uh, domesticating men and this whole, this, uh, the view, and Nancy Piercy talks about this in her book too, where like the church was viewed as a domestic thing. So it was like the realm of the women's, so the men kind of checked out. And then, yeah, like the, the church doesn't function when men check out or when women check out for that regard. Like, do you think there's, how do we determine that biblically? I guess, how do how do you, ride that line where it's like there's certain truths in there and there's certain yeah, men of interest, women of interest, but you don't want to, you know, take on the Darwinian, the Greco Roman, the Victorian, um, perspective. Yeah. That isn't biblical.
1: So it for sure, like you can do, you can do, um, psychological research across cultures around the world over time. And you can find that, uh, there are certain things that seem to be, Uh, you know, that, that in most characteristics, men and women overlap for the most part, but then there are things on the outside of that curve that are, that are more specifically female and more specifically male in terms of, of, in terms of character, in terms of personality. So you you wouldn't want to deny that, that, you know, science, scientific research has showed us that, um, it's just that you wouldn't want to take those, those scientific realities those tendencies that that seem to exist, Mm. and make that the basis for which you give arguments for what men and women do in the church.
0: Yeah, like your theology example. Like even if women, I don't know if this is true or not, but if women on average were not as interested in theology as men, it doesn't mean they shouldn't talk about theology or they shouldn't have access to a pastor. Yeah, be encouraged to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, you know,
1: let, let's let say it was found out that, you know, they did this big research project and they found out that generally women are less interested in theology. Would you be like, well, I guess that's the case. So let's not, you wouldn't say, well, let's just not teach women theology. You'd be like, mm-hmm. well, that's part of our fallen nature.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah.
1: yeah that's just- right? So, so it's not <clears> throat> to throat> deny that, that, there's, that there seems to be some differences in some places between men and women. Yeah. But it's mm-hmm. to say, we're not going to start with, uh, you know, an evolutionary or, a, you know, or a, a social science, you know, basis in order to approach the issue of uh, what men and women do in the church. Yep. That's, that's not how you approach it. You approach it with the word of God. Yep. And so, you know, I, I uh, in 2018, Dr. Cornelius Van Damme had an issue in, uh, had a, an article in the Clarion magazine and uh, he says in there that it's difficult to justify gender stereotyping, From scripture. Mm. He says that he says that clearly. So he gives all he gives all these examples. So I've got a a quote here from him. The Bible pictures Esau as the rough outdoors type. Jacob is the quiet, stay-at-home type close to his mother. Women were the ones who asserted themselves and challenged Pharaoh's command to kill the babies, the male children. Uh, He gives he gives a numerous other examples And then he says, you know, our Savior characterizes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Christian virtues are for men and women, include and both of them uh you know are called to being gentle and meek the gifts of the spirit are not characterized as male or female but they're for both genders so mm-hmm. love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness self control gentleness you know those are in in scripture we see that it's you know the scripture doesn't doesn't go after male characteristics and female characteristics in general it goes after human characteristics and christian characteristics
2: hmm. yeah yeah and then in your sermon you you explain that it's it's maybe when you put these stereotypes aside these especially like the a worldly stereotype, you get, um, essentially people are, you know, masculine or feminine because they're created as such. And then, um, whether you are, you you show certain traits as a man or other traits as a woman, you're, that makes you no less a man or a woman. Yeah. Um, Like, so
1: that, that, that's where there's this really important overlap between our topic tonight about, you know, the, the role of men and women, you know, in the leadership of the church, for instance, and the whole uh, when we're talking about transgenderism, we're talking about gender, you know, and sexual identities. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's a whole overlap. If if you're going to be um, if you're going to focus really on on gender differences between men and women in your church. Then, you know, then don't be surprised that people uh, you know, focus on gender differences when it comes to their own identity. You know, Nancy Percy puts it in this beautiful way. She says, like, if, you, if you read everything through gender stereotypes, everything has to go into a pink or a blue box. Mm. Every characteristic, every tendency, every like and dislike goes to a pink or a blue box. But as Christians, we would just say, no, no you guys are masculine because you were born male. Mm. Yep my wife is feminine because she was born female yeah. Yeah. and my wife was a tomboy when she was a little girl. Right. Mm. Uh, but she was not, that didn't mean that she wasn't feminine Yeah, when we're thinking biblically.
2: Yeah. yeah so, the, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. Cause if, if, what would you say to somebody who's, you know, maybe a young person who's, you know, maybe looking for someone to look up to maybe in the church, uh, a role model, or even like thinking about like, you know, an archetype of some um, a woman or a man in the Bible, like say the, the Proverbs 31 woman, you read a passage like that, you get a feel of like, Oh, this is what a woman can be, or maybe should be. And I'm sure there's like pressure for, for women to like look up to that woman or for men to like, you know, find a character in the Bible or even an elder pastor in the church to be, you know, like I, I want to emulate that man or, you know, in, in a certain way. No, it doesn't necessarily need to be a, a gender thing or specifically, you know, a stereotype as such. But when we look at that is, is there a danger in that? Like, not just principally, but also like characteristics, like to emulate, you know, maybe a, a business mind or an interest in a certain thing. Um, or should you kind of follow your own you know, makeup, I guess. Hmm.
1: Um, you know, I, I, I think about myself, like there's a lot, there's a lot of ways in my life that I, that I try to be like my dad. Hmm. Right. There's also ways in my life that I try to be like my mom, but cause I'm, I'm a man and I'm a son there you know, there seems to be when I think about myself as a, as a dad, when I think about myself as a husband, you know, or even a pastor cause my dad's a pastor, then oftentimes my thoughts go to my dad and I, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's lots of good, good things, but um, I tried to imitate my dad only insofar as he he himself reflected Christ. Hmm. Yeah. So the New Testament ethic in terms of how you live your life is uh, focused on the imitation of Christ. So in in the New Testament, if you want to know how you live your life, you don't first pull out the Ten Commandments, although the Ten Commandments are valid and apply still. You, you look to Christ and you say, How can I be, follow Christ and, and be like Christ? We're told numerous places in the New Testament to follow the example of Christ. So Christ is the one that you try to emulate. Christ is the one you try to be like if you're a man or a woman. Hmm. Now, you might have like a business leader that you really admire and you want to emulate that person, whether it's a man or a woman. Uh, and you do so you know, in terms of business savvy or you know, whatever it is, but you, you're only going to really emulate their character insofar as it reflects Christ
0: hmm yeah true yeah well that's a good answer to that
2: hmm.
0: maybe back on the stereotypes thing i guess because you you spent uh, your text is one peter three uh verse seven there at the weaker vessel can you explain um yeah you know, what what the text is talking about there when it references the weaker vessel because perhaps on first reading one might think that is a stereotype of sorts yeah so um that took a whole
2: sermon to get to wow whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> well basically you know
1: in in that sermon what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to take my machete and cut through all of the undergrowth of false ideas about manhood and womenhood and Mm. cut through all the stereotypes and try to say okay now what is what's scripture actually saying because if you read that and say you know honor women as the weaker vessel and you're thinking with a greco-roman mindset you're like yep they're weaker they're actually not even human and they're dumb and they you know they can't do anything in the public realm and you know or if you're if you're just thinking about in a in a um you know in, in perhaps a slightly more modern version you're like oh yeah they're just you know they they can't they can't you shouldn't work out of the home you know and they and they're not really you know they're not really they're they're, they're when when they're more intelligent than the average man they're like a two-headed gorilla and they are you know they're if you're thinking along those lines then you bring all those stereotypes into the scripture but when you try to push those aside and look at it in the context of of all of scripture then uh, then you're still in a certain way when he says the weaker vessel. In a certain way, it's still a stereotype, but I, I take it to mean weaker. You know, it, it says likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So I, I I come to the conclusion that I think weaker vessel there means generally weaker physically. So you might say that that's a stereotype, but that's one of those things where, you know, probably 90% of men are are physically stronger than women. We get testosterone at puberty that gives us upper body strength, which, which is the reason we don't have men and women box together. Yep. Yep. Right?
2: Until and, you
1: know if you, yeah. if you if you, look, if you look at the stats, you know, the stats show that women tend to hit men more than men hit women. So women will slap men and push men. But we don't really hear about that because the women are physically weaker. And so, but when a man hits a woman, it's a big deal because they've got greater upper body strength and they do damage. Mm. So I I would say that has to do physically weaker. Um, I think you could add in there uh, sexually more vulnerable and then even socially more vulnerable. Mm. So physically weaker in my mind would also include like women get pregnant, you know, wives get pregnant, people generally get pregnant. When you're pregnant, like, I don't know, you've ever tried to chase after a pregnant woman, you can usually catch her
0: you know it's, i'm it's, sure you could <laughs> i haven't given it a try recently let's try try it this I'll sunday get a subset of women sure yeah <laughs> We we around the church parking lot yeah that's right yeah.
1: so you know when, when women are pregnant especially or when they've just given birth they're physically vulnerable they're mm. they're vulnerable to you know and so you know they're, they're the weaker vessel in that way um uh because they're weaker physically, that makes them sexually more vulnerable. So most sexual abuse happens, man sexually abusing a woman, not vice versa. Mm. Uh, And then socially as well, if you just sort of look throughout history in general, women have, uh, have held, you know, in, uh, have held a, a lower status in cultures so that it's harder for them to do certain things. And so when, when you think about, think about that, then Peter is saying, look, what, look, husbands, Uh, Don't you don't you dare take advantage of your wife physically or sexually or socially uh, recognize that she's the weaker vessel in those areas areas and live with her in an understanding way showing honor to her as the weaker vessel because she's an heir with you to the grace of life. So you you have to you have to honor her as an heir co-heir in Christ with you and then he adds that shocking thing where he says so your prayers may not be hindered. And if you go down to verse 12, it says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's saying to husbands, if you do not treat your wife with honor and understanding uh, as the weaker vessel in those areas, I will not listen to your prayers. Mm, Like your sin against your wife. If you're a man sinning against your wife, taking advantage of her in any of those areas means that God shuts his ears to you. God doesn't listen to you anymore. It puts so, in jeopardy your 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 relationship with the Lord.
0: It's a very very serious text. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So is the flip side of like the weaker vessel, and then like in that passage, like very much God is saying, yeah, like you said, do not take advantage of them, care for them, honor them. Is the flip side of that a stereotype of uh, of a kind, perhaps for men in terms of protect and provide? Is that also part of that passage?
1: Yeah. Like I I think you could you could you know if you say well what's the opposite of a of of abusing, taking advantage of. Uh, those type of things. I would, I would, I would say, yeah. So, you know, does a husband have a role to protect his wife when she's pregnant and the barbarians are at the gates, you know, or, you know, yeah, you would say, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would be, I, w- I would like to stick with the language of a, uh, of scripture. When, when we talk about husbands and wives, we have here that live with her in an understanding way and show her honor as the, you know, so understanding and honor. Now what that might look like in practice might end up being, know protection and provision but i would uh you know i'd like to try to stick as close as i can to the the words of scripture when we talk about how men and women relate in
0: marriage yeah so like chivalry basically honor or no am i am i pushing that too far
1: yeah I, i don't i don't think peter's talking about uh open the door for her i think he's 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 saying look at your wife and recognize that she's an heir with you in the grace of life she's a she's a She's also your sister in Christ, and she's yep. on equal footing with you there, and treat her with the mm. respect due to a sister in Christ. Okay. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah. Not that I'm against chivalry, like no. <laughs> it, well, it's you, it's, you, no, you no, would no. say it's yeah, sure. It's for I guess it's for everyone. Like it's you know treat everyone <laughs> as if they were Christ, right? And The least of these sort of thing. Mm. Mm. So yeah, okay. the, uh, yeah, yeah. So was, that,
1: that's where I go. With it. We, you know, we've got. I mentioned in the sermon the the great story in my in my wife's family where her great grandfather biked on his bike for two hours to visit her grandparents when they yeah. first got married because he found out he he was he was using the casual second person pronoun for his wife like like in French you have tu vous he was using two instead of vous and his grand you know her great grandfather was concerned about this because he was yeah. like hey you guys are gonna have a functioning marriage you better treat your wife with honor. And if for him, honor was to speak to her in, in respectful terms. So it's sort yeah. of like a, a joke in our family because that sounds sort of almost silly now. But for yeah. me, I'm like, hey, there's something to it. Like there's this, you know, her great grandfather was thinking along the lines, you better start your marriage off and you better be showing respect to this woman
2: hmm. and
1: don't start treating her in any way that
0: diminishes her. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's there's something to learn from that.
0: No, that's a cool story. We don't have an English example of that, I
2: guess, but. For the language
0: a, side, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Well, the point, the point remains. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to move on to sermon two? We covered, covered sermon one adequately. Sure. So, uh,
1: uh, yeah, sermon two, I was, I was like, okay, you're going to talk about, um, male leadership in the church, male, male elders and office bearers. Um, you have to do that within the, the context of all of scripture, especially the context of the new Testament church. And then, I think it's helpful to view how things have changed or developed throughout history. So that, that's where I was going with this. So, uh, talking about women in in the early church. So, um, this is actually pretty fascinating when you, when you start thinking about it. So for sure, Jesus and the gospel writers give lots of honor and an important role to women more so than would have been in the Greco-Roman culture of their day. So even even you think about we just celebrated Christmas. So you've got, uh, you know, Mary sings a very theological song, uh, you know, when she when she finds out that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And it's, it's beautiful. And Anna, the prophetess. And and you've got a you think about just the life of Jesus, think about Jesus and the 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 Samaritan woman that he speaks to. So um, ancient historians tell us that it, at that time, men and women would have not spoken together, you know, in in uh, in public. And here mm-hmm. Jesus has this long extended conversation with a woman, even a woman who's got sort of a you know an interesting life, yeah. uh, and he speaks with her. And then he's found uh, teaching mary and uh, mm-hmm. and spending time in Mary and Martha's home. so this is this was really countercultural. I mean the 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 old Jewish commentary on the on on the uh, Old Testament, the Talmud, it says that uh, to teach Torah to your daughter, to teach the the Bible to your daughter is just foolishness. You ought not to do that. And then if you go to, uh, you know, what they would say, you know, those, you know, uh, rabbis of Jesus' day, if they would talk about the Old Testament, they would say, look, the Old Testament says, teach the scripture to your sons. So women do not need to learn the law of Moses. Um and Jesus is really countercultural to that. Jesus is teaching women. He's talking with women. He's uh and the gospel writers highlight the roles of women in the stories of uh in the stories of Jesus. Jesus allows a, a woman uh you know to wash his feet with her long hair. And, and, you know, you think of what was going through everybody's mind as she's sort of, you know, kissing his feet. She's, she's a prostitute. She's using the tools of her trade and she's, 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 you know, cleaning Jesus feet. And, Mm -hmm. and Jesus allowed that. He taught parables where, where women took place at, you know, a part in those parables and had examples. And then, and then, uh, you know, the whole idea of the resurrection of Jesus being first attested to by women, um, it's sort of hard, hard to make this stuff up because women at the time, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have been trusted. Their word would not have been trusted like a man's word in that culture. And yet it's women that, uh, that first witnessed the resurrection. So the gospels show us all that. Then you go, you go to the rest of the New Testament, you go to Acts, you see the disciples, they just learned from Jesus and they, they carried things on. So right in the very beginning of Acts, they're gathered for prayer. And it specifically mentions that they're there with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Like they, they specifically go out of their way to mention women. So very counterculture. The new Testament is really highlighting the role of women in the new church. Um, when they pick a new apostle to, uh, to, to replace, uh, Judas Iscariot, the women are, women are part of that. And then you think of the big, big Pentecost sermon. You imagine the apostle Peter, he's under the inspiration of the Holy spirit. He's going to preach a Pentecost sermon. He's like looking in his old Testament, like what, what text should I pick? Of all the texts, he picks the passage from Joel, which says, "Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. You know, your your young men will see visions. Men and women mm. uh, will receive the Spirit." Uh, that's an interesting text to pick. You know, that's that's what he's that's what he's highlighting because that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And then you get, you get, you know, uh, in Acts twenty one, there's a guy named Philip. He's got four daughters, and they're prophesying. Um, and then, yeah, you go you go you go into Paul. Paul, you know, mentions interesting things that we, it's almost hard to wrap our head around. So in in one Corinthians eleven, Paul talks about women who pray and prophesy in public in the church. So you're like, mm-hmm. do we even know what category to put that in? Yeah,
0: like, yeah. I mean, you'll get we'll get to this
1: later. With yeah the, the we'll, you know we'll get to and, that and the you know, let let alone that you know, the whole like New Testament just the covenant just opens right up and it's like, mm. you know, circumcision is replaced by baptism, which happens to men and women, the spirit descends on men and women. And then then you get to the writings of Paul. And so Paul is, you know, Paul's big on there's no Jew or Gentile slave or free male or female, you're all one in Christ. And then you get this famous passage in, in Romans 16, amongst others, where he just mentions all these different women that have been working them, with Phoebe and Mary and Junia and Perseus and, and, you know, you you know, a whole bunch, a whole bunch of different people. you can go through the list. I think they're like, you mm-hmm. know, how many, how many there are, uh, women play this big role in the new Testament church. Um, you could go to all the commands most, you know, the far majority of commands in scripture are to men and women, yep. mm-hmm. right? It, it's very few that are separate between men and women. The majority is men and women. And then he, and then you could, uh, I mean, yeah. So, so that's, that's the new Testament. And then even just in our own confessions, if you go to to Lord's day 12, where, you know, we're all prophets, priests, and Kings. So that means all of the women in our church are prophets, priests and Kings or prophetesses and priestesses and Queens, I guess. <laughs> uh, and if you go to the, the prophet, you know, we're all prophets. If you look at the footnote mm-hmm. in Lord's day 12 there, all of the footnotes there are uh, are texts about um, people publicly prophesying, publicly speaking of the Lord. Mm. so you know we, we confess it in heidelberg catechism this is the case but this is just yeah r- r- really really interesting so you've got you've got all of that stuff uh biblically that i tried to lay out and say this is the biblical new testament
0: context that you want to read passages about male leadership in and where mm-hmm. and where does it change like how does the new testament church like how do we lose our way there is it i think you pointed out as the empire starts to become more christian then
1: yeah so y- th- if you want to figure out where you lose the way, then you have to study history. And so you get, uh, you know, when Constantine becomes emperor in the fourth century, then suddenly it's advantageous for people to join the church and the church gets uh, more hierarchy gets established. And what happens is the church becomes more secular. The church starts rather than, you know, it was like a band of persecuted people living according to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Now it's a public religion, you know, endorsed by the empire and everyone's flooding into it. And they bring in worldly teaching with them Mm. and what some of the worldly teaching that they bring is worldly teaching about men and women and about, about gender. And and so what happens is you trace through history is the role of women starts to decrease, starts to decrease after this time. And so, you know, maybe we can get into the question of, of deaconesses, but you know, Mm. deaconesses were, were obviously there in the early church, but they disappear after this time. So, uh, yeah, you, you get to- you get all these church councils that begin to say you know um, well uh, deaconesses are wrong and then that uh, that women need to be excluded from this and women need to be excluded from that mm-hmm. so you get you know you get all the way to the case we have a you have a council in five eighty at the, the council of Auxerre I've got it got it here on my screen here where women are not allowed to touch the bread of the of the communion bread with bare hands otherwise they would defile it yeah, okay we no start more. get these weird ideas that like. Women and women are so different and women are so lower that they're going to defile the Lord's supper. And, mm. and then you get Thomas Aquinas, he's a real famous Roman Catholic thinker in the, in the 1200s. And he considered women to be inferior to men. Um, and that men were, yeah, were really superior. Women were faulty and deficient, less intellectual. And this had a really big, he had, he had a huge philosophical impact in the Western world and in the Western church. Mm. And so what happens is women pretty much disappear from from any uh you know fr- from christianity a lot in general they they're allowed to go to church but then their role beyond that turns out to be you can go to be a nun hmm. yeah. so things things go really really awry and and that happened for a long time like we're talking a fourth century all the way to the time of the reformation like that's a lot of church history a lot of sort of the burden of history that presses down also on us today in terms of how we think
0: about men and women in the church and 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 a lot of it was really bad can you explain what the deaconesses were in the early church like what that role was exactly so this is
1: a this is well this is a big topic so i don't know how how much we want to how much we want to get into it i like um, i
2: I serve as a deacon in my church so i uh this is something that comes come come across from now you know now and again at least Um, cool
1: it's it's also one of those things like so you know, full disclosure, I was a pastor in the ERQ, which has women deacons. And so in my church, we had women deacons. Yeah. So, um, the Belgian confession article 30 says that we ordain men to these offices, mm-hmm. including the office of deacon. So, uh, you know, I, I'm my, my, goal here is not to say, well, we've got to change the Belgian confession and start teaching something that's not in the confessions. I'm, I'm not supposed to do that, but I can explain to you church history and, and how, how this looks also in some of our sister churches. So, uh, Romans 16 verse one, Phoebe is called the deacon. Now the word for deacon in Greek is the same as the word for servant. So some people or some translations, I'm not sure how the ESV puts it. I think they put servant, um, will say that she's just a servant, but it's the word for deacon. And, uh, it seems to be that Phoebe's the one that's carrying the letter of Romans. Uh, you know, he, she's delivering it. So it's sort of, you know, Romans 16 one is like an attestation for her saying, Hey, you know, trust this woman. She's a deacon at this church. Right. Um, uh so deacons were were part of church history it, it's sort of an undoubted and uncontested fact by all historians that for the for the first 300 years of of christianity um where the women were deacons there were deaconesses nobody mm-hmm. contests that even even for instance like john piper uh you know who, who would have a in, in in my mind would have a pretty you know uh yeah, he has a slightly different and a pretty strict role a view of of women in the church. Uh, he openly admits that yeah, for the first couple hundred years of Christianity, there were deaconesses. Right. Okay. Um, that, that's an uncontested fact. In, right? And so,
2: in yeah. Acts, when they when they appoint what was it, Acts six, they appoint deacons to help the disciples as they or the apostles as they are preaching, um, because it becomes a problem they can't keep up. I guess with the basically with the workload. It sounds like yeah. All of those are men, right? Yeah,
1: so they're all men. Interestingly, they're not called deacons. We assume that that's the beginning of, of the deacons. Oh, but that's what... It's not mentioned. That's how it's interpreted, isn't it? That's right. So, I and I would agree. It doesn't no. say that they're deacons, but that seems to be that they're... That's the start of the deacon That's how I've always understood it anyways. Yeah.
2: That was and the, if you look at that, right? What, what's the problem that they're dealing with? They're just, they are just need to care for the congregation. Yeah. Well, they're lo- yeah, they to- were uh, neglecting the widows. Yeah.
1: That's right. So in their culture that, you know, there's widows that are being neglected. The Greek widows are being neglected. And, you know, so they're, uh, they assign men you can imagine that, you know, these men working with these, these widows, these single women in their homes, they probably would have grabbed some women to help them do that. Um, but, but, you know, so certainly they're, they're all men, but if you go, the the argument for women deacons or the, the, the history of women deacons flows out of, uh, out of one Timothy three. So, uh, 1 Timothy 3 which is the qualification for overseers and then the qualifications for deacons um, that text was a interpreted differently in the in the early years of Christianity than it is today so if yeah. you uh
2: but it specifically mentions wives which is something that struck that's something that struck me in the last year being yeah, so serving as a deacon so, that the elders it's not it's not uh it, it mentions being a husband of one wife but not that's any right. of the qualifications about their wife
1: so here's the interesting thing so in in uh in my bible the ESV, 1 timothy 3 verse 11 says their wives likewise must be dignified not slanders etc mm-hmm. if you go to the greek the word there is not there it oh, just no. just the word for wives so so the ESV is added there in there now here's the interesting thing in greek the word for wife and the word for woman is the same word just like in french thumb is you use that word for ma femme or la femme. It's, it's woman or wife. Yep. So you could read that as women likewise must be dignified, not slanderous. So uh, the, the, if, if you look at the, the context, this is how people would explain it. So you look at um, um, 1 Timothy 2. It's talking about um, the church as a whole and prayer. And it says in verse 8 that men should pray like this. And then 19 at verse nine, likewise, also women. So, you know, it's talking about the whole church. Here's what men can do. Likewise, women, it's the same thing, but one for men, mm-hmm. same thing now for women. And then you have the same idea in, in, in chapter three, where it's now speaking specifically about office bearers. So it says the overseer in verse, in verse one, and then eight deacons, likewise, mm-hmm. here are the qualifications. And then verse 11, my Bible says they're wise, but it could be women, likewise, and, and if you look at the text, if it's wives, it would, you know, if you, if you read it, if it's wives, it would make a lot more sense If verse 11 came after verse 12 because verse 12 now says deacons should be the husband of one wife. So if you switched 11 and 12 around, it would make more sense. You'd say deacons should be the husband of one wife managing their household or their children in their own households well. Their wives likewise must be dignified that that's would read more naturally. Right. Yeah. Instead yeah. it's now it talks about their wives and then it mentions the deacon should have one wife, but the, uh, in, in uh, the first couple hundred years of Christianity, they read the Greek and said, no, women likewise must be dignified and that these women are female deacons.
2: Why does it say women that they, likewise? Does, why does it say a deacon should be a husband of one wife then?
1: Yeah. So just or like the just elders. Saying, as if. Yeah. Ju- like- yeah ju- just like the, the elders, you know, you, you live in a, a polygamous society. Elders should have only one wife. They shouldn't be uh, polygamous. Deacon, hmm. male deacons should just have one wife but you, you don't have to tell the women to have one husband because that doesn't exist in your culture. Oh, so I see. That's, that's, mm-hmm. how the, that's how uh, you know, the early church fathers uh, read it. And, and for the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, uh, women were deacons. Hmm. That's, that's just an un, uncontested fact. So uh, yeah. now, yeah. for instance, in our, we have sister churches or park churches, for instance, the Reformed Presbyterian Church has female deacons. That's not like they did something recently in order to bow to feminist culture or something. They, they've had that as long-standing practice. And in the ERQ, we had that as well. So in my old church in the ERQ, the difference would be is that we distinguish quite a bit between the role of deacons and the role of elders. So in form churches, sometimes the deacons almost play like an elder role. Right. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes, for instance, if you don't have enough enough uh, uh, office bearers, you just make put the deacons and you put them into consistory and you make that make them all one in erq that doesn't happen so they would say no the the deacons male and female together have the role of uh of caring for the poor and the elders have the role of the uh the ruling and the teaching in the church
2: yeah and those are those are distinguished yeah i was thinking about that this afternoon was well while we were preparing and the it seems as though like we use especially in our our church order we use um consistory with the deacons that phrase a lot Um, to refer to what we would call the council of the church, which would take care of, you know, the ongoing, you know, the budget and just the ongoing of the church, not the spiritual matters, but there is almost a leadership aspect to the deacon role in that they, then they step into that council room. Is that something that's different in the ERQ or something that's different in would have been different in the early church where a deacon is more of a supporting role, but has less of a, a leadership capacity or, um, well, I, I would say, uh, no, I would say the women play a
1: leadership role. And, and I don't think that we should be afraid to say that. I think that that's where we get down to the nitty gritty of, okay, what, what is the, why do we have male only, you know, uh, elders in particular, because we are not, we, we have to think through about what we mean by leadership. Um, right. and, and, and what do we think about that? So when, when I was in the ERQ, we had uh, consistory meetings, where it was just the elders. Mm-hmm. There we dealt with all of the the ruling and you know the uh the ruling, the discipline and the teaching, you know, the, the spiritual ruling and teaching of the church. And then we had the deacons had their own meetings and we also had council meetings where we dealt with uh you know things that we would we we might have in common or you know when the you know with their reports we had to share that type of thing. Right, right. So you know I I never felt once when I was in the ERQ that oh I've got female deacons that are playing the role of elder. We distinguished that. Yeah, right. Um, as as I think that it ought to be, you know, yeah, the, I, think, I think the elder, yeah. elder and deacons' role should be distinguished.
2: And I think we do it. I think we do distinguish, mo- or most of the time, at least. But the, um, yeah, I'm just thinking like so in our in our church specifically in Cornerstone, we have a, you know, the deacons' uh, wives are often um, just are put on a committee called the care committee, which, essentially, they're 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 basically deaconesses. Like they're doing a lot of work. That is deacon work. Now, we don't call them deacon deaconesses and maybe it's just terminology. They don't join in the deacon uh, room when we have meetings and stuff, but they do a lot of the work. And they're also, you know, a part of the role of deacons is to encourage your church members to to care for one another to. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's an interesting
1: yeah, it's, so you're, you're like, putting your finger right on something. And, it's and the, just the semantics that,
2: at some point, well,
1: the fact that that reality exists in your church today, where deacons' wives, mm-hmm. like why the deacons' wives? You know, just, you, you just could because be, it's it be anybody. So somehow you've got this little <laughs> tradition going on mm-hmm. that, you, that has developed over time that you have the deacons' wives have a care committee and they do sort of diaconal work. Because they read and the. I
2: th- they read Timothy and they said their wives. So that's why they, maybe they didn't see woman.
1: (laughs) You know, so I I think what's happening there is you're, you're, you're living, you're living out in in practical function. You're doing, uh, you're doing the same thing as the early church did, but you're just not, you're not quite owning it. Like the early church, if you would have taken any church leader from the first couple hundred years of Christianity and they would, they would have probably said like, well, why are you not calling them deacons? And why are they not in the diaconal meeting if they're doing
2: diaconal work? Well, there'd be too many well,
1: of them. It's worth asking that question. Like, yeah. so, you know, why is it that we don't have women deacons? So, well, we've got, a we've got Belgian confession article 30 that says we ought not to, but uh, you know, from from an ERQ perspective, you know, you, uh, or other, you know, other churches that have women deacons, we would be like, well, no, like, I, I, I think that the reason that you probably don't have women deacons has to do more with, the, the secularization of the church over time, the, the, the cultural influences over time, over, you know, a couple thousand years of Christianity that have made it so that you get the women to do diaconal work, but you don't call them deacons. Hmm. So now, now that being said, for instance, if, if you, you know, I I was comfortable coming into uh, you know, from a church that ordained uh, you know, women to the office of deacon to a church that didn't, because I I saw in uh, at Jubilee that the office of deacon and elder were being put really closely together, mm. and that in a lot of way the women uh, sorry the deacons were playing uh, a ruling role, and that's a role I think that we ought to keep from You're right, right. So you know, there there's no desire, you know, there there's nothing behind that to sort of like blur lines or to not take the Bible seriously. It's it's an attempt to take the Bible more seriously than perhaps than, than perhaps we have. Hmm. so uh that that being said you know if if this is you know i suggested in the sermon i was like this is a, something that perhaps at some point in time we ought to think about and i'm trying to be careful with that because you know it's not my job to go around teaching something that's that's you know the the belgian confession article 30 you know seems to suggest otherwise so that's not hmm. my intention at all and certainly if this is a discussion that were to go forward we'd have to grapple with the wording of the end of the article article 30 in the belgian confession but yep. there's a historical reality there that's that's pretty much undeniable
2: well that's uh I think once we get into the symbolism of it, I think that was mostly in the third sermon of Mm. of why we have like male only leaders, like elders, especially. Um, Mm. Maybe we can readdress that because the symbolism is what I think is. I don't know if it's not well understood for sure. Um, You laid that out in your sermon. And then and then we we might play semantics a little bit with the word deacon because we understand it a certain way where maybe deacon meant something else in the early church or just the symbol of deacon wasn't isn't now what it was then so i don't know. maybe mm-hmm. yeah maybe we can just go into that yeah I explain the male this. only leadership let's go let's go that direction
0: sorry sorry what was that last question just explain the male only leadership like why
1: yeah why that why that is so yeah so if so if you look at if you're rejecting all these stereotypes yeah and you're looking at the new testament church and it's. And it's counter-cultural embracing of women, you know, in the church. Uh, and, you know, a- add to that all of the women that, you know, are prophets and the women that are judges and the women, you know, all of these things that are happening. And then add to the fact that in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 verse 5, Paul talks about women that pray and prophesy in the church, hmm. um, which is, which has got to be public because he's saying, you know, don't do it with your head covered. You know, don't it's public and it's, you know, the women are doing this. Yep. So why in the world, after all of that, would we still say that you should have uh, male only elders in the church? That's that's the big question, because for for the the Christians that say, look at all of this evidence. Of course, we should have women pastors. They're not they're not being they're not giving just a stupid argument. Like they're looking at all of church history in a scripture and they're like, it seems to lean toward that. Mm. Right. Um, but I, I would I would, uh, you know, I I hold to to pastors, elders, uh, in, in our case, deacons to, to have male, uh, that there, there should be male only because of passages like, uh, like one Timothy chapter three, uh, passages like, um, yeah, particular, uh, particularly one Timothy three, where it's, you know, it's, it's men in particular that, uh, that are, are designated to office. I, sh- I should say, uh, I mean, we we could we could get into the uh, get into the the text in particular if we uh, if we like. In um, one one Timothy chapter two, um, where are we now? Yeah, so the end of chapter two, where he says uh, it's in the context here of uh, of the ruling and teaching of the church, and he says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man." Rather, she used to remain quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor that she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So, uh, and then, and then it goes on to talk about overseers. So the the context is, is teaching and authority, teaching and ruling. It's the context of office bearers Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, Yeah. So it's the context, context of office bearers. And Paul makes an appeal to creation there. He's not just saying, Hey, this is not culturally a good idea. He makes an appeal to creation. And he says, look, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he's using that Adam being first. And then Eve as a, as an argument to say that it's men that ought to have the ruling and teaching function in the church. Mm -hmm. Adam was not deceived. It was Eve. who was deceived. Adam wasn't the one who was directly involved with the deceiver. He wasn't the one talking to the snake. but Eve was, and that's not to sort of, blame Eve since Adam was with her. Uh, That's not to say that women are more easily deceived than men or some other stereotype. It's to say that there was a dysfunction happening there. There There's a dysfunction in roles that was happening there. Mm. That's what Paul seems to be appealing to. And he's, and he's saying then we ought not to make the same error in the, in the overseers of the church. And so the teaching and the ruling function of the church should be for men and not for women. Mm. And then there's that strange saying about being saved through childbirth, which, you know, there, there's multiple views on on what that means, um, but yeah. So, so the, despite all of this history, despite all of this biblical argumentation, despite the the way that uh, that the Bible speaks about women and embraces women, the role of authoritative teaching and ruling, Paul argues, ought to be for men only. Hmm. And to argue against that from that text, you just you have to. You have to change how you read scripture. You have to unravel scripture a little bit and not use a, you know, a, an orthodox Reformed hermeneutic a way of understanding scripture. You have to unravel it to get something else. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you can't, you can't do that. So you stand enthusiastically, you know, along with Paul and say mm-hmm. the role of, uh, you know, ruling and teaching belongs to men.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you explain, you, you went through the idea of a fracture pattern in your sermon, showing like the symbolism of, of oh, yeah. Yeah, how that plays Yeah, so out.
1: then I, I tried to, it was intriguing as I was thinking about the sermon. I was like, okay, so I, I can read 1 Timothy 2 and say, yes, I believe that, you know, uh, ruling and teaching, authoritative ruling and teaching is for men only. But then I sort of asked myself, like, why? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need to know why. I can just accept scripture as being scripture and obey it. God doesn't have to explain everything to me, but it's why have men only ruling and teaching? Because it's not like men are smarter. It's not like men are better teachers or are necessarily wiser or something. Like there's a lot of women out there that can teach better than me, you know? So what, what's why? So that was an interesting question for me. And I, and I, I tried to figure out why. So then I thought, well, Paul, Paul refers to Adam and Eve. Um, which are which are also referred to in Bible passages that talk about husband and wives, and in husband and wives, we really we know why it's obvious why the you know the uh, the man is given the role as head. You know, it's to reflect the unity of Christ in His church. So it's like Christ in His church, uh, you know, is reflected in a smaller way in husband and wife, and so mm-hmm. a fractal pattern. A fractal pattern is like if you look at a fern. And you look at it the way it looks. And then you look down onto like a little part of the fern and you see it's the exact same shape. And then you go down further with a microscope and you look at the smallest little outcropping of the fern and it's the same shape again. So it's the same shape repeated on different levels. Mm. And so it seems to me that that, that's what's going on in marriage for sure, like Christ in his church. And then on a lower level, that's reflected in a husband and wife. Mm -hmm. And so then I thought, well, perhaps that's what's also going on. That's why, or that's what's behind this idea of, uh, why God chose in his wisdom to have men take the role of uh, of of elders, so maybe that too is a fractal pattern, maybe that is to reflect something of Christ and his church so that that seems to make a seems to make a lot of sense to me, but it does rely on on an this fractal pattern idea of sort of symbolism it's like mm. the husband and wife symbolize or reflect the mystery of the unity of Christ in the church and the the male elder the male pastor in front of the church symbolizes Jesus or symbolizes God to the bride, uh, the church. And it's, it's a, it's symbolic in nature. So, um, this really got, uh, got highlighted for me. You guys have a picture, I think of, uh, of CS Lewis on your wall there. So C. Yep. CS Lewis, yeah, he's got a, um, an article about priestesses in the church and CS Lewis, you know, uh, was all into literature and understood symbolism very well. And he, mm-hmm. he makes this symbolic argument, which for me makes a lot of sense. So when you think about symbolism, like, you know, some of our churches are like in the inside, it looks like they've been purposely made to be really plain and boring. Like after mm-hmm. the reformation, we're like, get rid of symbols,
0: yeah, you know, but
1: yeah. we still, we still do have symbolism. So we, you know, certainly the sacraments are symbols. Um, we have other, other things that we do. Like when I give the blessing, I raise my hands. Like, it's yeah. not like when I, when I was a kid, I sort of thought that the pastor raises his hands and it was a little bit like, like one of the Sith Lords, like all these electricity <laughs> would come out of your fingers, like the blessing of the pastor. I'm like. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, just to be clear to our listeners, that's not, not what happens. God, um, shoot. It, it's just a symbol, right? And it's based on the old Testament priests, uh, you know, or the high priest standing on the altar and he would raise his hands. And so it's, it's symbolic mm-hmm. or Jesus who ascends and he raises his hands in blessing. And so it's a symbol. And we have, we have other symbols. Um, some of our churches will, you know, uh, or probably most of them, you know, an elder will shake the pastor's hand before he gets on the pulpit.
2: Nope, That's a no, symbol. Not with COVID.
1: Most of us <laughs> don't know what it's a symbol of, yeah, right. but it's a symbol.
0: Yeah. Right. Or even uh, so we do symbolic things. We,
1: we have a, uh, we've got lots of symbols in marriage ceremonies. Yep. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I love the symbolism in marriage ceremony. Like I love how the very first act that you do once you're married is you kneel and pray. So like the very first thing you do as a, as a married couple is you kneel before God. And so we have a kneeling bench. We don't have that elsewhere in our church tradition, but at weddings, we still do. It's very symbolic. And -hmm. then the very, of all the wedding gifts you're going to receive that day, the very first one is a Bible. Bible. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So those are, those are symbols, you know, and, and, and they're, they're full of rich meaning. Um, We've lost a lot of symbolism in the church. Uh, You know, even things like, you know, I would, I would like to go back to a single cup at Lord's supper, like individual cups. We we lose some symbolism there. Uh, Yeah. We got to get back to that. Anyways, Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about symbolism also in in relationship to male and female roles. So if the liturgy in your church is sort of a drama conversation between God and the people, who's doing the speaking for God? Well, it's the pastor or the person Mm -hmm. who's presiding. And so as a pastor, you say, thus says the Lord. And you repeat the blessing in the name of the Lord. And you, 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 you preach on, you know, the words of God. And so in, in the symbolism of the liturgy drama, the person who's playing the role of God or the mouthpiece of God uh, should be a male because God is, you know, he reveals himself as male and Jesus mm-hmm. was a man or is a man. And so I, I think that that, that makes a lot of sense. And then when you think about that, then you're like, oh, okay. So there's like all kinds of women in the church who play leadership roles. They they're they're judges. They prophesy. There's Miriam and Deborah and Halda and Judith and Esther and all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there's all kinds of women who play prophetic roles. You've got Mary, you've got uh, Elizabeth, you've got Anna, you've got, uh, you know, the, you know, Joanna, Suzanne, all the ones that are mentioned by Paul who play who play prophetic roles or teaching teaching roles within the church, but you don't get or you, and then you got you know you've got Phoebe the the, the deaconess and you've got co-workers in the cause of the gospel in Romans. Mm-hmm. But nowhere in scripture is there a female priest. Mm-hmm. So there's female prophets and there's female judges, leaders, but there's no female priests. Um and that that priestly role uh that you play in the in the church in the liturgical drama symbolically is best suited to a male. And so G.I. Packer's got this great quote where he says, even if you don't agree with male only elders, you should desire it in the worship service because it makes the most sense in the, in, in the symbolism of the liturgy. So I, I, you know, it's not like, I don't build my argument for male uh, overseers to, or, or office bearers on the basis of well, it just makes symbolic sense. I build it on what Scripture says. Yep. But when I ask the question of why does Scripture do that, then I think the 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 answer of symbolism makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, we yeah I think we've lost a lot of that that symbolism, like you said, and like I mean, probably a discussion for another day. But even in the Lord's Supper or baptism, or do we really understand? The, the inner workings of that symbolism and stuff like you you mentioned the one cup i agree we should go back to that but uh we could probably
0: leave that for another day um <laughs> yeah i i wanted to yeah, ask no, about ahead. yeah like so we've talked a lot about the traditional historical influences and how how the bible what the bible has to say about that and what's the, what's the truth and what's the cultural influence in separating those two things uh, but now of course in our time there's much more of a push in the opposite direction uh, feminism, you know, run amok sort of thing. Um, I suppose on the one hand, you have some people saying, "Well, there's no differences, and you can change genders and sexes and and whatnot." But well, I th- I think another critique you might see a lot from from younger people and maybe even younger women in general, because you see see this in university life a lot, is uh, this the concept of the patriarchy and the oppressive patriarchy, and and that's you you might hear the critique that the church is set up in an oppressive patriarchy and there's there's male-only leaders. How can they ever speak to to women's issues and what women are thinking about? So how would you respond to to a critique like that? What are they missing there? And maybe can you touch on, because I thought it was really good, how you ended off that third sermon um, talking about the idea of the church as a family as opposed to a corporation.
1: Yeah. So if someone were to ask me that question, I think I'd I'd want to try to start by some some humility and say, well, maybe they're onto something, not because of what scripture says, but because perhaps how we've run the church according to uh sort of traditional stereotypes or, or secular ideas. So I've heard personal stories from women who have um, who have found church life really hard when, you know, their, their elder made, uh, you know, really couldn't understand what they're going through, you know, in a, in a marriage or couldn't understand what they're going through as a woman. Um, I've heard stories of people that were told some really ridiculous things by by male overseers, by male male elders, um, who weren't trying to be harmful, but were just speaking out of a, a real stereotypical, culturally, traditionally culturally informed perspective rather than a biblical perspective. And so if someone says to me, Hey, the church has been an oppressive patriarchy, um, I would say, Well, I better look at my own church and make sure that I'm not an oppressive patriarchy. Hmm. I don't think that we, you know, I don't think we need a feminist reading of scripture because I don't think that that scripture is anti women or I think that scripture does a great job at, at how it uh, speaks about men and women and, and I'm, you know, the question is, have we been living by it, mm-hmm. you know, or have we been perhaps been secularized by the culture around us over thousands of years to do things that, you know, that that are not good. So that would be, that would be my first perspective. And I think that that there's a lot of work to be still to be done, you know, in, in, in a lot of churches where to put into practice, what we actually believe. Mm. And, and it's hard because um, a lot of us, a lot of, you know, you know, if you're a guy like me, you you don't necessarily naturally think about, uh, well, how is this be, you know, should we be doing allowing women to do this or that? Like you just sort of, You just sort of plug along as a man because you're allowed to do it. So, you know, when, when there's, yeah, so we we need to examine our own churches and say, Hey, are, are we um, denying certain things to our sisters that we ought to allow them to have, or we ought to celebrate uh, that they're part of, we need to do some serious thought about that. So a humble approach, first of all, but then if, then on the other side, if people are saying, yeah, it's a, you know, it's just a, it's just a patriarchal power structure you know, it's just uh, you know, it's it's toxic, toxic masculinity, and you know, you know, we you you've got you know the men have all the power. Part of part of the problem there is that we have this weird thing going on in our culture where we view everything through the lens of power dynamics,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's that's really unhealthy. And it's unhealthy in the church too. We we ought not to. The Bible doesn't place tons of emphasis in the New Testament on the authority and power of the elders. You know, it's, it's, there, there's some texts that you could point to, but it's not like a huge emphasis. And so we've got to get away from thinking about the church as a corporation, as like, you know, a hierarchy, you know, where mm-hmm. there's a, some top people at top and sort of like a, you know, a, a business structure of of some sort. I think about, you know, when Jesus says in, in Matthew 20, that you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't lord it over each other like the Gentiles do, you know, that we don't, we don't, we aren't, we don't uh, have leadership as Christians, like the Gentiles do, like the world does. We have a leadership that serves and that, you know, gives our lives as ransom for others. So we've got to, we got to think differently than the world about the structure of the church. And I think that we need to get back to not thinking about hierarchy, but thinking about like family relationships and order within the church. It's not so much about like a hierarchy, like who's on top of who and who's got more authority and who's got more power and who's got no, like, I don't talk about like that in my family. Like, how often in my family do I have to tell my kids I have authority over you? Don't you dare say that or this. Like, you have to listen to me because I'm authority. That, that you know, maybe once in a while, but that's that's very rare. Like, mm-hmm. we just have family relationships, and my wife has certain roles in our home, and I have certain roles in our home, and the kids have certain roles in our home, and when the grandparents come, they have certain roles, and uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody sort of works together. And you develop the way of working together as a family that works. And a lot of those, you know, you know, there's, yeah, there's certain things that we've worked out and that's just a natural and and nobody, you know, my wife doesn't sit around going, oh, I wish it was the father <laughs> or, or, you know, I don't be like, man, I wish I was the mother or the kids aren't like, I wish I was the mom of this house. You know, right. that's just not how it works. And so if you think about the church in terms of uh, in, in those family terms and say, Hey, like, let's treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and recognize that in the church also there's, there's fathers and there's mothers and there's grandparents. And so, you know, the, the fathers, the elders, the elders, you know, the, the, there's fathers in the church who have this particular role in the church and there's women in the church have these different roles and young women have these roles and some young men have these roles. And, and you, you think it along those lines, then you don't have like, this desire to be like, oh, I need to climb the power hierarchy. Or, I need to, I need to get some of that power for myself. I think that if we if we spoke more about the church in these family terms and spent less time talking about authority and less time talking about submission to elders and all, you know, all those type of mm-hmm. things, if we tone that down and spoke in familial terms more, I think we would have less people grappling for, oh, I we need to have women also as elders. Like mm-hmm. You know, if, if the elders and the deacons are seeing themselves primarily as servants who are there to serve and, you know, give up of their lives for others as they follow Christ, it's like, same goes for husbands. If husbands are, are acting, you know, uh, as, as heads, who by definition mean that they give up their life for their wife in following Christ. You know, that, that's a very different idea of leadership. It's a very different idea of, of headship. It's a different idea of authority. Mm. Uh, if we focus on on those biblical ways, then I think we we tone everything down and we don't, you know, then people in the church aren't going to be like, oh, we got to get rid of the power structure. And I've seen that to be the case. So in my old church in Rebontanee, in, in, in Quebec, I had a good portion of my church that um, that would have liked to have women elders but uh, they didn't, it wasn't an ongoing issue. It wasn't a big conversation because they saw that the way that the church run was run, even though it was male only elders and pastor, that it was run in a way that women were uh, able to use their gifts and were paid lots of attention to. And it was run in a family atmosphere and there was no lording it over people. Hmm. The elders were there to serve and to, you know, you know, it was, it was a real servant type leadership. And so it wasn't a real, it wasn't a real big issue. We didn't have too many people clamoring for things. Um, and this was in a province that, you know, you know, was thinking a lot more like that, you know, since a longer time than than a place like Ontario. So. Right. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's, uh, if thinking about it as a family, like it definitely makes sense. Like you're not clamoring for positions and stuff. And I wonder if sometimes if our, the attitude we have to it is a lot of like well we have elders we have deacons they're they're or, ordained roles and we a lot of times we have a lot of committees we have a lot of there's a lot of structure to our church so there's like you know maybe we have a 10 15 committees and when you're at a council meeting there's a lot of times it's like let's roll through our 12 committees that we have and and hear reports from them all and it seems a lot more corporate than you know uh, a group of women got together and organized a nursery it's like the nursery committee mm-hmm. And then uh you have, you know, this person holds this role. And um yeah. I, I I just sometimes wonder if that's uh, you know, a necessary structure, though it, you know, could be helpful to organize your organize your church and especially these big yeah. budgeted, you know, um organizations. But um yeah, just I shared I shared an example with Lucas today of uh um yeah, the I guess it's like yeah, kind of a corporate attitude to our our structures where um a couple of elders had a home visit, I believe, or maybe just a visit with an elderly uh, woman. And and she asked if they could um, help move some of her furniture, and they offered to send the deacons over. Well, see, now it's like the deacons show up, and it's like a three-second thing, and you had to move the chair that the elder was sitting on. It's just – it seems like such a corporate um, way to run something, right? Like, I'll have HR give you a shout, or, you know, like um, – yeah, yeah, it just – you wonder if all those structures need to be there. That's how we should view it. And, and yeah,
1: and, it- and th- think about this. Add on. Add on to that. The um the use of sort of like Robert's rules in the consistory room or in in uh in classes meetings, where your your meetings can take a real corporate flavor. Mm. Um, you've you've got an agenda. You've got someone that runs it like a business meeting. Um, I've have, I've have someone in my church who has read all of the acts of synod that have ever been uh, written. So if anybody's looking for a hobby. You know that that's a, that's a good one. So he's written all of the acts of the Canadian Reform Churches, of all the synods, but he says that he notices a difference in the first uh, decade of of synods uh, to the the acts of synod afterwards. That the acts become a lot more um, business like, a lot more succinct. Business, this is what happened, uh, you know. Whereas the first ones were a lot more pastoral. They spoke in in, in more pastoral terms, hmm. uh, and I I think that. We got to be careful with that because you're right. If everything gets if we if we plan the life of our church to be the most efficient as possible, we've got a committee for this and we've got everyone's got a role. And, and every time there's something, you just check the diagram to see who's supposed to be yeah. in the flow chart, and who's supposed to do it. And then everything's run really like that. Yeah, you, you run the danger, then also you sort of lose some 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 just some family life atmosphere.
2: Yeah. And then you miss opportunities for especially for women to to serve and to to lead in those areas because i mean i and i think we do a fairly decent job but just um, without formally recognizing a role having opportunity but if you yeah if you start thinking about it corporately then you start the structure itself starts to exclude exclude women from from it you know um even though a lot of our committees are you know full of women.
1: Yeah, so you know, women do so much in our churches and you know, they, you know, involved in so many things in so many wonderful ways. Um so you know, it's it's not very many committees that would, you know, would not allow a woman to be on the committee. I, I you know, I'm I'm of the opinion that if an unordained man can do it, then an unordained woman should do it too. Mm. You know, so you know, I, I can't see why that would be any difference, but you get examples like we had an example um, a couple of years ago at a, at a congregational meeting where the, the, the one of the elders was running the congregational meeting and finished the congregational meeting and said, yeah, could one of the brothers close in prayer? Asking a, any brother from the congregation. And I thought to myself, no, you should have asked, could, could one of the members close in prayer?
0: Mm. Like if, in,
1: if Paul says that women were praying in public, you know, why would you not have a woman pray in public today? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's some and you know and that that particular elder wouldn't have a problem with that, but it's a it's a habit. It's like a this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. And so we gotta, I think we gotta work on that a little bit. We gotta uh, try to do our best to to live what we really believe. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we
1: got we had exam- examined some traditions that we're involved in, and in, or some traditional way of thing, doing things to say, hey, does this really jive with what we believe?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's that's it's been great to to go through your sermons and hear the preached. And yeah, we we need to know what the biblical line is and and where that instruction is in order to, you know, reject the incorrect cultural stereotypes of the past, mm-hmm. but also not go too far in the other direction and and completely throw off the yeah. idea.
1: And and you know, some people will say, um. Look, we, if we do, if we do the things you're talking about, Winston, if we just sort of like allow men, you know, any, any role that's open to an unordained man is also open to an unordained woman, a woman, you know, if we do that, then we're going to have, we're going to slide into women office bears or something. And I would say that the actually the opposite is true. So I I would think um, that if you are, are practicing in your church Uh, if you have the practice in your church of saying that women can't do these things, even though we don't have good reason for them, if women can't do these things just by tradition, not because of biblical belief, then why would someone listen to you when you say that women shouldn't be office bearers or women shouldn't be pastors? Like if you can't give biblical justification for these practices, but you say you have one for this one, like why would they listen to you? I I think the best way to stay true to scripture is to stay true to all of scripture. Yep. And so let's let's be enthusiastic about male-only overseers, and let's be enthusiastic about making sure that we're not putting any traditional stereotypical boundaries uh, in our church that limit the role of women. Uh, you know, let's 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 celebrate and allow our sisters and our brothers do everything that the Lord wants them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the better way to to stick close to Scripture and to and to guard uh, our position on male-only leadership.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a good wrap up right there, I think. That, that summarizes it well. Yeah. Anything um, else do you want to add while we got you here?
1: No, I think that's uh that pretty much coming. No it. other
2: family anecdotes or anything. Uh, <laughs> 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 hmm. no, we we appreciate you coming on. This was something that I wanted to talk about for a while. And I know I I don't know that it's a, a topic that's so alive in our churches, but it's definitely something that that used to be alive with women voting. Um, and hmm. there were there were some other, you know. I'm sure there's still oh, people
1: I I just, I just thought, of, thought of one other thing that I came across the other day. So I don't know if you guys are, are too young to remember, but it used to be that every Canadian Reformed home had a set of books on the shelf called Promise and
2: Deliverance. Oh, yeah. I yeah? remember that. So he's yeah, too young. So, uh, no, I don't remember. Your oh, home yeah. had it
1: for sure, Lucas.
2: Oh, probably. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: yeah. So Promise and Deliverance, it was like every home had that. It was sort of a redemptive historical walk throughout scripture. And it was written by, a, by a um, um, I don't know if it was a, I assume that he was a pastor, we'll call him Reverend DeGraff. Uh, Reverend DeGraff, that, he was, that was written, you know, way back in the day. This is, you know, uh, you know a long time ago. And uh, he, he writes elsewhere that uh, he suggested that we have women pastoral teams that um, did work in the congregation amongst women and that reported to the elders. So, you know, he's not suggesting that there are elders, but he's saying, Hey, the elders are men, but there's women in the congregation that would, could benefit being ministered to by women. And the elders should also know what's going on amongst the women of the church so that they can, they can do a good job leading them. Hmm. So uh, women pastoral teams that the church has set aside saying you women are on this pastoral team. And then you, you report to either in person or, or via written report to the elders, uh, so that we can know what's going on. I think that sounds pretty interesting. And that's not someone that's not coming from somebody who is soaked in, you know, modern feminism or something. That was someone who's saying, hey, this this would be a good way for us to to guard what we believe in scripture, but also to minister to the sisters in the congregation the best way we can. I thought that was kind of cool.
2: Yeah. Hmm. interesting. Yeah. Food More, for thought. Yeah. And we're mm-hmm. hoping to, uh, you know, explore that further, too. So,
0: yeah, we'll be talking to uh, one of the ladies from, Hampton. The, yeah, yep. from the Flourish group uh, coming up. I think so awesome. you also spoke with yeah. her on.
2: Uh, on Tarantis also
1: yeah we spoke to her on our podcast that's gonna be a great conversation andre is a is a great uh great interviewee
2: yeah so we thought uh this would be a good precursor just to understand the whole um you know the, the male only leaders but that you know symbolism and and all of that before we mm-hmm. you know do a deep dive into you know maybe
0: some things that we can do and and then that whole organization so yeah be sure. beautiful well thank you for your time winston we really appreciate it and um yeah just uh god's blessing in your work in ottawa and uh Thanks again. Keep up the work. Thanks so much, guys. Keep up the great work. All right. (laughs) right. Thanks Thanks so much. Catch you next time, folks. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk.com. At gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamaga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.